If you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, and yes, I am going to say it, turn to chapter 7. We have completed the first six chapters, including that very lengthy and powerful sixth chapter of John's Gospel. And now we come to John chapter 7. This morning we will take a rather large section of Scripture as Jesus is at the Feast of the Booths. We'll be looking at chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. In this section of Scripture, Jesus warns us about falsely judging. He's speaking to people in His time, but it is very applicable to our world and lives as well. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. For the Word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me Who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. 
and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That in your word we would see the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would know him. That we would see his glory. That we would seek after him. Lord, there is none like Jesus. Please, open our eyes that we might see him. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen. This morning we are looking at a relatively lengthy section of John chapter 7. We're looking at this section as there is a feast, the Feast of Booths, and Jesus goes up to this feast. And in this text, we will see how Jesus warns us against judging with false judgment, judging by appearances. All of us have to make a judgment about Jesus. John knows this and he encourages it. His whole gospel is set up for that purpose. We've seen this theme over and over again that John wrote this gospel so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, we would have life in his name. Now John is using the backdrop of the most popular feast of the year in Israel to show us several false judgments about Jesus. Three groups of people judge Jesus by appearances, specifically how Jesus fits into their view of the world. The challenge for us today is to have our world revolve around Jesus. Not to try to squeeze him into our perception of the world. And so this morning I'd like us to see three judgments. First, we see judging by worldliness. We see a group judging Jesus in accordance with worldliness. Second, we see judging by fear. That there are some who judge Jesus through the lens of the fear that they have. And then finally, we see some judging by pride. They see Jesus through the pride that they refuse to give up. Judging by worldliness, judging by fear, and judging by pride. Well, this chapter begins with the words, after this. You should be a bit familiar with that. John has said this to us or wrote, written this to us several times after this. Now, we remember that John is not as interested in chronology as the other gospel writers are. And so this chapter is no exception. The after this takes up a good deal of time and space. Do not think that the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 7 occurs the day after 
chapter 6, verse 71. No, John wants to keep to his main purpose, and that sometimes requires him to skip or leave out large gaps of time. This is one of them. After this, skips over about six months. You may recall that in chapter 6, John gave us the context for the events by telling us the Passover was at hand. Now, the Passover occurs in spring. That may be familiar to you because it coincides with our Easter, which is always in March or April of the year, in springtime. But this feast, the Feast of the Booths, is at the end of autumn. It's at the end of the harvest season. So about six months have passed during the phrase, after this. This Feast of Booths was the greatest feast of the year. We think Passover is the greatest feast. But this feast celebrated the completion of the work of the harvest, bringing in all of the crops and having plenty and food and joy. It was a time of great celebration, a time of plenty, a time of joy. The people came from all over and camped out in tents to remember the time of the Exodus. The word booths here is referring to a tent. And so they would all come into Jerusalem and set up tents and spend a week that way, enjoying themselves. This festival was all about fun and joy. You might think of it when there are periods of time in which you might have young children ask if they can camp out in the backyard. And what they want to do is set up a tent in the backyard, but that's not all they want. They want snacks, and they want sweets, and they want to stay up late, and they want flashlights, and they want to have a great time. Well, it's not much different here. Everyone is here. There is a, a national camp out, so to speak. Everyone is enjoying camping out. Well, except, of course, your pastor. Because your pastor doesn't camp. But everyone else loves this. And even if they were living in a home in Jerusalem, what they would do is they would set up tents on the roof of the house so that they could join into the fun. No one was left out. There were vivid ceremonies that we'll see in weeks to come. There is the pouring out of water in the temple. There is a festival of lights that Jesus will attend. Now, this is important for us to note and understand because what is happening here is happening at a time when all the people were there and it is joyful. At the same time, there is danger for Jesus. Do you see that in verse 1? After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. We've seen this in the past. Most recently in chapter 6, we see the Jewish leaders, they don't like Jesus. They don't want his teaching. They're not appreciative of his miracles. And every time he does something that draws crowds, every time he criticizes the leaders, they want more and more to kill him. So much so that at this point, Jesus can't go about in Judea. In the time of the after this, the other gospel writers list much of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Well, the context for these three people 
seeing Jesus, is this celebration, this feast. And so we begin with the first group of people, that is, Jesus' brothers. We're introduced to them in verse 3. They say to Jesus, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also may see the works that you are doing. They come to Jesus and they say, you should go to Jerusalem for the feast. Now when we hear that, that's a bit jarring. Because we just heard in verse 1 that in Judea, where Jerusalem is, the leaders are seeking to kill Jesus. So what are his brothers doing? Are they trying to put Jesus in harm's way? Is this some kind of recreation of Joseph and his brothers? I don't think so. But we can see their motives in the text as we go through it. But the first thing we must ask ourselves is, who are these people? The text, I have to tell you, is crystal clear. They are Jesus' brothers. They are not his cousins. They are not his acquaintances. They are not his distant relatives. The only sense in which this word could encompass more than brothers is often in the New Testament, the word brother will be used to encompass brothers and sisters, male and female. These are children of Joseph and Mary. Now, they have to be his younger brothers because Jesus was born from a virgin. But I feel the need to tell you this because rising out of the medieval church, there was a tendency to elevate Mary almost to the extent of the angels and Jesus by saying that she was perpetually a virgin, that she never had any other children. And the text is very clear here. Jesus has brothers, and we see them over and over again in the Gospels. We see them in Mark 3. We see them in Matthew 13. After Jesus' resurrection, we see that they are found among the early believers in Acts chapter 1. One of the brothers, we believe, is James, who you may recall as the author of the epistle of James. The youngest brother is Jude, who we believe is the author of the book of Jude. So his brothers will come to believe and will be Bible men. They get to write the Bible. But right now, John makes it very clear, they are not believers. They do not believe in Jesus. It's crystal clear at verse 5. So what do they say? They say to Jesus, go up to Jerusalem. That's where all the action is. Now, they're likely referring to the fact that Jesus has just lost many of his disciples who could not take his teaching on the bread of life. You remember that in chapter 6, verse 66. I told you it's one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Many of his disciples left Jesus at this time. And so what his brothers are saying to him is, you can't be in secret and expect to make a splash. You need to show yourself to the world. You need to make plain who you are. If you want people to know you, you've got to go where the people are. You've got to give them what they want. Now, this is a reasonable idea from a worldly perspective. If Jesus wanted to be a big-time religious leader, he needs to be more public. If Jesus wants to impress big crowds, he needs to show his miracle power at the feast. 
That's what they're telling Jesus to do. They thought they knew Jesus. They were judging him by the appearance of worldliness. They were judging him as if he were like them. As if he wanted worldly success. And so that's why they're telling Jesus to do what they say. Well, how does Jesus respond to them? In verse 6, he starts with a point about timing. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now, that sounds odd at first. What does Jesus mean? Jesus often referred to his time or his hour in accordance with the will of God and his work as the Savior. And so his time was determined by the will of God. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 4. He says, in the fullness of time, Christ was born. And so there is not a single moment, a single day, in which Jesus' actions are not guided by the Father's calendar. And if you will, watch. He's only doing what the Father says that he is to do when he is to do it. He will not be rushed. He will not be delayed. He's on the Father's timetable. But his brothers, any time is as good as any other time, is what Jesus is saying. They're not following God's will. They're not entertaining what God wants. They do, well, they're American. They want to do what they want, when they want, how they want it. They don't take God into account. And that's what Jesus says to them. I have my time. You don't have a time. So that's why you don't care when I go up to the feast. And then in verse 7, Jesus further points out their worldliness. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He says, the world can't hate you because you're a part of the world. You've bought into the system. Your desires are their desires. But the world hates me because I speak and tell the world that its works are evil. And this is what we see everywhere around us in our day. Those who seek to curry favor with the world will never call the world out on its sins. And yet, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are compelled to tell the world when its works are evil. We cannot keep silent. We must say that butchering babies in the womb is wrong. We must say that lying and cheating is wrong. We must say that abusing others is wicked. We must say that dishonoring your parents is wicked. We must speak where God has spoken. And that does not make you popular with the world. It shouldn't surprise you if when you speak what the Bible has laid forth, that the world hates you because it hated Jesus first. Now, there is a great challenge to us in how we view Jesus. We are tempted to view Jesus through this lens, if you will, of worldliness, this judgment of worldliness. When we have too much focus on the world we lose sight of who Jesus is. It's easy to think of the Christian life in terms of our respect in the world. After all, we naturally want 
to be liked. No one gets up in the morning and says, I really hope a lot more people hate me today. No one does that. We want to be liked. We don't want others to think we're weird. We want them to be around us, to be encouraged by us. And we certainly don't want to be hurt by others. We don't want to be treated badly. But in a world that hates Jesus, we are bound to be hated too as we follow him. Are you ready to give up worldly popularity and success for Jesus? Because you see, that's the question here. And we can also view Jesus' mission and the church through the lens of worldly success. This is the story of the church over the last few centuries. The church is constantly trying to take away the offense of Jesus and to be successful with the world. To blunt what the Bible says. To say the Bible doesn't really mean that. Or I'm sure God thinks differently today. This is what the church has done. But if we are faithful to God's word, that's impossible. We must speak where God has spoken. Jesus does not belong to the world. And that's why the world hates him. We must remember that if we belong to Jesus, we do not belong to the world either. Well, there's a second group that Jesus interacts with of people who are at the festival. In verse 10, we read that Jesus goes up, not publicly, but in private to the festival. Now, this is not a contradiction of verse 8. Jesus was not going up publicly as his brothers had wanted him to do. He was not going up at the beginning of the festival. He went up in the middle of the festival privately, not to show off with miracles, not to be seen, but rather simply to participate. His brothers wanted him to perform miracles, to have a miracle show. Notice that's not what Jesus is doing here. But the people also want that show. That's why they're asking for him. Look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? Now you could just imagine. The crowd is saying, Where's that Jesus guy? You know, my friend was with him and he got all kinds of food. The best food. And I heard a story, my cousin told me, how when he was at a wedding, that wine came out of nowhere. And then there was this guy. He was out by a pool. He, for decades and decades, he couldn't walk. Jesus went up to him and he was walking again. This guy is the real deal. He's a miracle worker. And they're walking around saying, where are you, Jesus? Give us some miracles, Jesus. Come on. That's what they're doing. But Jesus is not accommodating them. We've seen that before. And as a result, the people are unhappy with Jesus. In verse 12, there was much muttering about him among the people. This is that word that we saw last week, that word grumble, that I told you is such a great Greek word. Gung, 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 ginzo. That's what they're doing. They're muttering under their breath. They're whispering. They're grumbling. They don't want to be heard. Just as they did in chapter 6, Jesus is not at their beck and call. And they don't like that. That's the problem. Now, there is sort of an argument 
about who Jesus is amongst them. And once again, we see a judgment about Jesus. And once again, it is based on appearances. Because they want and they expect Jesus to perform miracles for them. That's the context in which they see Jesus. Now, it seems as if John is describing two types of people here. Two sides, the good and the bad. There are those who say that Jesus is a good man. And then there are others who say, no, no, he isn't. He's deceiving the people. But John actually doesn't see it that way. There aren't two groups of people, one good and one bad. Because look at verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Neither group is willing to speak publicly about Jesus. Why? Because they're afraid. Now, don't be fooled by those who say that Jesus is good or a good man. What do they mean by that? They certainly don't mean that he's good enough that they would have a personal attachment to him. They're not willing to follow him. They're not even willing to publicly say he's a good man. And then there's others who won't take Jesus on his own terms. They want Jesus to be comfortable, to be safe. That's what they mean by good. You need to know that Jesus never claimed to be good. Not in the sense in which crowds and the world applies it. You know, it is very fashionable in our culture to talk about Jesus as a good teacher. As someone who brings helpful teaching, who's concerned, who's loving. Well, I don't need to believe in him. But he's got some good ideas that we should apply in life. Well, let me tell you, the one thing that you cannot say about Jesus is that he is a good teacher. He didn't leave you that option. He's given you three options, and this is not original with me. You have three options with Jesus. You can either say that Jesus is crazy as a loon because he's saying he's God when he's not. Or you can say he's the wickedest man to ever walk the face of the earth because he's claiming to be God and to be able to save others when he's lying and he can't. Or he's God because that's what he claimed to be. Jesus never stood up and said, hey, look at me. I'm a milk toast, kind, good teacher. Take me or leave me. He never said that once. And so what this group of people is doing is trying to pigeonhole Jesus into the judgment that they've already made about him. They want him to meet their needs. Now, the other side is no better. They had no faith in Jesus as he truly is. To them, Jesus was leading others astray. He was deceiving others. They were unable and unwilling to accept Jesus' identity because it would have put them against the powers that be. And the whispering that's going on is proof that neither believed in Jesus. Now, this is also something we face. Believing in Jesus has a real element of fear that we need to work through. Being a true follower of Christ is not popular. It doesn't make you beloved. You're probably sitting here today saying, if I said 
certain things about Jesus publicly, I'd get fired. Or I'd be shunned by other people. Or I'd be ignored by them. Now, understand here that Jesus is not asking you to be obnoxious with others. Not every conversation you have needs to be an evangelistic plea. You don't have to get in everyone's face all the time and tell them about Jesus. But Jesus is clear that you cannot be ashamed of him. You cannot hide from him. You cannot whisper about him. Those who are unwilling to make a public confession of Christ, like this crowd here, are ashamed of him. We must be willing to identify with Jesus and with his work. And that is getting harder and harder in today's world. Identifying with Jesus puts a target on your back. Now, I want to take a moment here and specifically speak to our young people, our college-age students, our teens, our grade school children. You need to know that this is especially true for you. That the world is getting harder and harder to be a Christian publicly. That your life now today is much more difficult in our society than it was when I was your age. And when you reach my age, your life will be even more difficult than it is for me today. You need to face this head on. You need to understand that you can't view Jesus through the appearance of fear. Do you have real Christian faith? If so, that means you have to be open and unashamed. You don't need to seek out conflict, but you can't hide in fear. Jesus puts it this way in Luke chapter 9. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Do you want the Son of Man to be ashamed of you when he comes in his glory? Well, Jesus tells you then what you must do. You can't be ashamed of him, and you can't be ashamed of his word. You can't judge Jesus through the lens of fear. Then there's a third group that judges Jesus. This time, through the lens of pride, through the appearance of pride. Now, in the middle of the feast... Jesus makes a more public appearance here in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Now, this is not what Jesus' brothers and the crowd wanted him to do. They wanted a show. Do you see the pattern here that John keeps showing us? Instead, Jesus went into the temple to teach. That's more important for him than a miracle show. And the reaction of the Jews was interesting. John tells us in verse 15 that they marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, at first glance, this seems like a very positive statement, uplifting Jesus. But if we look more closely, we see that they're actually demeaning Jesus' teaching. Literally in the Greek, they say, how is it that this man knows his letters when he has never 
learned. They're saying, you never went to school. We're surprised you can read and write. What makes you think you can stand and teach authoritatively in the temple? And you see, this is because Jesus is teaching in a way different from the way that all of the learned men of the day taught, all of the rabbis. They all studied other rabbis. They gained knowledge from others. And you see, their pride is their way of judging Jesus improperly. He doesn't teach like a rabbi should. You know, everyone knows a proper rabbi would, when a subject comes up, for example, divorce. The way that you teach on divorce is you say, well, Rabbi Ben Ezra taught this about divorce. And then someone else says, well, that's interesting. But Rabbi Ben-Gurion taught that about divorce. And then a third person says, you're both all wet. You don't know what Rabbi Ben-Judah taught about divorce. And it was all a citation of, of a citation of a citation. There was no originality. There was no authority. There was no even appeal to the scriptures. And that's what they're saying here. Who does this guy think he is? Where's his diploma? Where did he go to school? Where's his citations? He can't possibly teach authoritatively. He doesn't have the credentials that he's supposed to have. And behind this is an air of religious superiority. Jesus just doesn't measure up. If he only taught like they did, then maybe he might be more effective. He doesn't fit into their patterns. For them, their pride was more important than the substance of what Jesus was teaching. And that's why Jesus answers them the way that he does in verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus says, my authority comes not from human credentials, but from God and his word. Now this is very important for us to see, because Jesus is telling us that the most important thing is to be grounded in the word of God. To study God's word. So, if you want to learn to teach others, to lead in a Bible study, to teach your children, to teach your grandchildren, to teach or preach. What you need is the knowledge of God's Word, God's authority. You don't need to build up a secondary authority. You need to go to God's Word. That's what Jesus is saying. But the world doesn't care about that. What does the world want? Well, you know it as well as I do. The world wants reams and reams of studies. The word wants credentials upon credentials. The world wants to see great poll numbers. That's what the world wants. It doesn't want the Bible. But Jesus tells us that the only thing we can rely on is the word of God. Rick Phillips puts it this way on how important the Bible is. Only God has the credentials to speak on matters of life and death, heaven and hell, salvation and eternity. Therefore, our teaching should strictly consist of preaching what God has taught in his word. Then Jesus challenges their pride with respect to their actions in verse 17. He says, if anyone 
has their will to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God. He says, if you had a true judgment, you would desire to do God's will. That's how you would know if what I say is true. And this, again, hits at their pride because they weren't willing to submit to God's will. They were always looking for ways to avoid the teaching of God's word. And Jesus gives them an example of this in verses 21 to 23. They had the law of the Sabbath, but they also had the law of circumcision. And Jesus says, what do you do when you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but when the law of circumcision requires you to do a circumcision on the Sabbath? What do you do? And he says, you seem to understand that small point. You put principle against principle, and you see what God would have you to do, and you determine that that's not working on the Sabbath, and that you must perform the circumcision. He says, you seem to get that. How come you don't get the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not murder. You've been trying to kill me this whole time. That's no small matter. That's what Jesus says. He comes at them right at the point of their actions. They could not even see that their pride had so blinded them that instead of rejoicing by what Jesus had done, they sought to kill him. Now, we must be careful not to think that we are beyond our pride. This is a form of religious unbelief, and it's the most dangerous kind of unbelief because it allows us to have an air of superiority over others and still misjudge Jesus. The question comes, what are you doing with God's word? Are you willing to be corrected? Are you willing to be shaped by God's word? Are you willing to be exposed by God's word? Are we willing to be told that our ways are wrong and we must follow God's will? Or do we stand with the world who says, well, I could never believe in a God who said this or wanted me to do that. When we think we know better than God, we fail to judge Jesus with a right judgment. It is easy to judge by appearances. Appearances feed into our sense of pride. They seem to protect us from what we are afraid of. And they make us comfortable in the world. But Jesus calls us to cast aside all appearances, all false judgments... And to come to him. When we see Jesus as he is, we will judge with right judgment. We will see ourselves for who we are. A people lost in sin and in need of a savior. A people who are called to submit to the word of God. A people who are willing to be uncomfortable for the cause of truth. Are you willing to follow Jesus that way? Proper judgment requires that we come to Jesus and sit at his feet, eager to follow him wherever he leads us. That is right judgment. Let's pray.